Spark Media presents Cosmic Creatures by Jason Kent Nord. Performed for you by Adam Anagnostu, Mike Kelly, John Yonker, and Luke Langfeld. Sound design by Dan Steffens. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the episode notes for more detailed descriptions. And now, Episode 6, Transition State. Cracked ribs hurt like a monitor. I try to convince myself that the physical pain is a nice distraction from the emotional anguish, but to hell with that. Two kinds of pain don't cancel each other out. The concussion stuff I can deal with. I've spent many a day hungover, head-pounding, and in a semi-lucid condition. But constantly stabbing ribs are torture. Well, if I have to suffer, I can do it somewhere else before I'm recognized and the shit hits the fan. I pull out my IV. Can't say I haven't done that before. The puncture spot bleeds a bit, but it'll stop soon. I flip the sheets off me with a muted groan. Every little movement is answered with sharp pain. The stupid bed rail is up, and I can't figure out how to lower it without twisting, which ain't happening. Luckily, it only extends from my shoulder to about my hip, so I should be able to swing around it. If I clutch the lower end, maybe I can make like a gymnast on a pommel horse and swing down around it while keeping my torso straight. I inch my feet over to the edge keeping my torso as stiff as possible. Ouch! I dig my heels into the bed and successfully slide myself to the lower edge of the bed rail without too much pain. I move my feet over the edge and stop. I slowly take in a breath. Not so much that I fully expand my lungs, but enough to further brace for the pain that's about to come. Here we go. Three, two... One. Oh, holy hell! I immediately regret the move. My feet land on cold, hard laminate flooring, but I stabilize and instantly jerk upright to straighten up my tortured frame. Dizziness and sudden weakness rush over me. I see spots and feel unsteady, but I still have one hand on the bed rail. I grip it tightly and ride out the tidal wave of pain. It seems to take forever before I feel suitably recovered from this stupid maneuver. Okay, what now? Clothes. I need clothes. I don't see them, so I amble a couple of paces to the bathroom to see if my clothes are there. The sight in the mirror mortifies me. Two black and blue bloodshot eyes stare back at me. A nasty, dried abrasion smears the side of my head and forehead. Black stitches dot my chin. No wonder nobody recognized me. I don't recognize me. Well, hell, I look like I feel, I guess. Now, I need to get moving before the nurse comes back. Damn, my clothes aren't here. But I guess it's not surprising. They were probably bloody and torn. Maybe I can swipe some new ones? I'm not going to make it far in a hospital gown. I waddle over to the door and slowly crack it open. I can hear voices down the hall fussing about something, and then the volume of a television is turned up. 
I peek out and see a huddle of nurses and orderlies crowd around a television in a little waiting area at the end of the hall. Residents are urged to stay indoors, a reporter is saying. Authorities ask anyone who sees a strange-looking or oddly-behaving animal to call 911 immediately. I spy an open door down the hall in the other direction. I make a silent break for it. Tiptoeing into the room, I'm startled when a bed-bound old guy looks at me with some alarm. I turn away and raise my hand sheepishly as if to motion. Sorry, wrong room. I peek out in the hallway again before exiting. Good thing, too, as another nurse walks by and heads down to join the crowd. I slip out and again can hear the television. Reports place a majority of the animals east of town. We'll have more details as they become available. What the hell is that about, I wonder. But the end of the report will break up the gaggle of nurses, so I make a break for it while I still can, scooting along the wall toward the emergency room entrance. An ambulance siren is fast approaching, and I know I'll be... Hey, sir! A nurse calls out. I pick up my pace, wincing with every jab to my ribs. The ambulance arrives outside the entrance in front of me. Two EMTs and a paramedic swarm around and retrieve a patient from the back as I reach the doorway. Stop! You can't leave! yells the nurse, her voice closer than before. I exit, just ahead of the new arrival, whose gurney provides a momentary roadblock behind me. The patient has a bloody and torn security guard uniform. I think I see claw marks or bites, maybe? Some sort of rabid animal must have got him pretty bad. A towel covers his face. I duck around the front of the ambulance, glancing back without twisting. I can only hope the nurse will abandon me for the new arrival. The open door of the idling ambulance tempts me. Adrenaline racing and feeling highly exposed in the bright daylight. I don't analyze the options. I climb into the driver's seat, and it takes every ounce of self-control to not scream from the torture of twisting into place. My vision blurs from unwanted tears. I rapidly blink them away, clenching my jaw hard. Through the windshield, I see that the nurse has appeared at the hospital doorway and is looking up and down the road for me. I freeze, pressed against the seat back, praying she won't notice me. Damn! She sees me. Her mouth pops open in protest. I throw the vehicle into gear and pull away with the rear doors wildly flapping open. Her stunned expression in the side-view mirror is so vivid it becomes a photograph in my mind. I head up the block and turn right. Oh, God! Turning the wheel nearly kills me. I go straight for around seven blocks toward the east end of town. Braking, I start to carefully shuffle the steering wheel in my hands to take a gradual left. The smaller arm movements protect me from the sharp stabs that come from bigger movements. Now I just need to avoid catching the curve. I can't imagine how painful the bump would be. Completing the turn, I notice three emergency vehicles in my side-view mirror tending to some crisis a few blocks back. The sight of the red and blue lights is ominous. I get a panicked urge to get out of sight and fast. The open doors and hospital gown will give me away for sure. With a strip mall on my left, I figure the largely concealed back delivery area is a good place to start. I again take it slow and wide pulling in. 
succeeding in keeping the pain to a minimum, I rolled to a stop. What the hell do I do now? I need some clothes for damn sure. Where are the... Before I can finish the thought, I notice a clothing donation box at the corner of the lot at the end of the strip mall. Well, I'll be damned. The problem is that I wouldn't likely be able to fish anything out of the mailbox-like chute. Still, it's too good of an option to rule out so quickly. Oh, crap, I have a bad idea. I aim the ambulance and accelerate. The collision is far more violent than I expected, and I come to a quick, harsh stop that is punctuated with ravaging pain in my chest. Wincing and groaning, I grow lightheaded, and black spots dart around my vision. A wave surges through me, and I nearly pass out, but I close my eyes and let it subside. Desperate to escape and reposition, I shift the ambulance into park, open the door, and painfully slide out. Tears trickle down my cheeks and drop free as my feet hit the ground. The pain is all-consuming. Looking around, I don't see any witnesses, thank God. Then I look to see if my gambit worked. Two of the donation box's legs broke free from where they were fastened to a concrete slab, but the other two held, and the ambulance smushed and dragged the metal box and its concrete slab several feet. Fortunately, the rear hatch of the collection container popped open as it twisted from the impact. Ha! A pile of clothing is free for the picking. Bending down is not an option, so I make like an overdue pregnant woman, grip the ambulance fender to stabilize myself, and slowly lower myself in a slight backward lean to keep my torso as still as possible. Knees bent, I reach down with stretching fingers for a bag. Finally, there, I got it. With a grunt, I dig my fingers into a handful of a black plastic and stand back up, pulling it with me. It's heavier than I expected, and swinging it up onto the ambulance hood renders a blow to my ribs that elicits a strangled cry. Oh, holy hell! I look around again and still see no witnesses. Thank God. I tear open the black plastic bag. Two pairs of jeans are a welcome sight, and it looks like one will fit, so I fling it over my shoulder. Next comes a blouse. I toss it aside on the hood, figuring I won't have to bend over for it in case there is nothing better. Thankfully, a t-shirt is next. It's an ugly orange soda t-shirt, which probably stands out too much. But it beats the blouse. Anything else? A very sparkly prom dress. Yeah, no. Digging, I find one thing left, and it's stiff. What the hell? I pull out a frickin' corset. I'm about to toss it aside, but then I hesitate. C could I? No, well, maybe. The thing looks to be roughly the right size. I scan around the area and still see no one. I loosen my hospital gown and let it drop to my ankles. I'm now standing in my boxers, holding a woman's corset near a strip mall's dumpsters and leaning on a smashed ambulance. Totally inconspicuous. The corset is haplessly laced up, so I carefully lower it and step into the middle. I successfully squeeze it up past my hips with 
relatively manageable pain. Every breath hurts anyway. Placing it into position with laces in front, which might be backward, I begin to tighten the laces. I soon recognize that I have hit the jackpot. The stability helps ease the pain of breathing. I tighten it as best as I can, slip on the t-shirt with fairly tolerable pain, and blindly struggle into the jeans while leaning my back and head flat against the side of the ambulance. I'm barefoot, though. That's not great. A thought occurs to me about the injured security guard. I go to the back of the ambulance. Another jackpot. A number of his personal effects are all in a bin. Tucked inside are a pair of boots. The luck almost feels like an insult. Finally, fortune takes notice of me. Abandon me for a decade plus, and then show up with a corset, jeans, and a pair of boots. Fuck me. I'm flipping through the exhibit list, trying to take it all in and get an image of each creature in my mind. But like everyone else, I'm still wound up from the treacherous trek through the woods. Ellie picks up the phone in her living room and dials 911. She and Nick lost their cell phones in the accident on the road, and Fitch, like me, doesn't have one. Luckily, the Higgins still have a landline, given the sometimes sketchy cell coverage here. They're not going to believe, Fitch starts yammering. Shh, Nick shushes him. From the receiver, we can hear a muffled, 911, what's your emergency? Hi, we've got some dangerous, uh, animals? Ellie begins nervously. Ma'am, we're well aware, and we've got all units busy taking care of it, the operator responds. I scoff. Taking care of it? Yeah, right. But they killed a man, Ellie says. Officer Lutz from... A police officer? Interrupts the operator. No, from the lab. From QLI, where my dad works, answers Ellie. He's a si- Ma'am, how old are you? Asks the operator. Seventeen? Are you in a safe location? Yeah, we're home, but... Then, honey, I need you to stay inside and lock all your doors and windows. Do not go outside. Stay put until your parents tell you it's okay. The line goes dead. Ellie reluctantly hangs up. Well, that helped, snickers Fitch. I find a bit of solace in reviewing the list and report out loud. There were two killed at the lab, exhibits 24 and 34. The other security units radioed two kills, 32 and one of the flappers in the 9 to 12 group. We got four of them. Fitch's little buddy was exhibit 21. That monkey thing that killed Officer Lutz was exhibit 27. The gross dart thing was one of the two. There's another one? Fitch moans. Yeah. Exhibits 36 and 37. And then the beast in the garage was exhibit 16. That's 8 out of 37. Hesitantly, I add, if there are still a bunch trapped in the capture bay, it might not be so bad. It looked like a lock got out, Nick replies regretfully. Radio in for an update. We didn't get a response when we radioed from the garage, but what the heck. I pick up the radio, check the volume knot, and give it a try. Uh... <clears throat> This is Unit 1, I start, feeling a bit weird for having adopted the moniker, but not sure how else to start. Um, does anyone have more information on kills or captures? There is only silence. I repeat. This is Unit 1. Can anyone hear me? Anyone out there? Silence. Then, a sharp crackle. Kid, it ain't good, comes a female voice. Find a safe place inside and stay there. We got one more, but 
We've got wounded officers. Which one? I ask. Which exhibit did you get? There's a pause before I receive what I am assuming is a reluctant answer. Another one of those four-flapping, flying things. Nine or ten, or whatever. Okay, I start. If we find any more, we'll... Kid, the officer cuts me off, sounding more exhausted with me than she should be when we've killed more creatures than any other unit. Don't be a hero. Stay inside. Can't anyone come out this way? Out to Forest Edge Estates? We've got some dead ones out here. Shouldn't they be collected or something? And Officer Lutz... Negative. Stay inside, she replies. You're on your own. If only she knew. The dead thing lying under the plastic next to me both scares the crap out of me and beckons for attention, stoking insatiable curiosity in me. A real creature from a distant planet is just lying there, and I, along with Dr. Mintz and Jawhands, have to navigate broken computer parts to see what can be salvaged of our diagnostic equipment. An onrush of a pair of military men bursting into the control room, however, succeeds in diverting our attention. What in God's name is going on here? asks the one who obviously must be in charge. He spies the thing under the plastic and squats down to inspect it. He must have already seen the one in the lobby, or he's got an incredible poker face because he looks more annoyed than shocked. I trade hesitant glances with Dr. Mintz and Jawhands, each of us deferring. I accept losing the short straw moment. We aren't entirely sure, I pause for the man's name. Colonel Harstad, he supplies. And not sure doesn't cut it. Speak. Uh, Yes, sir, I reply feeling a bit admonished. My, our, experiment was to remotely capture dust and pebbles from space. Colonel Harstead seizes on the pause as I clear my throat. Dust and pebbles? He mocks, motioning at the dead creature. Please, I say, pushing back. Let me explain. The colonel moves to the window of the capture bay and growls at the sight below. That was the idea, I continue to his backside. But, uh, I nearly say kid, but quickly think the better of it. Visitor, fix the sequence and change the target. Exactly who was this visitor? Colonel Harstead demands, turning back to me. So much for evasion. His name's Kale. He's my 14-year-old neighbor, a genius, really, and we... You let your neighborhood children work your experiments? He asks, his temper rising. We weren't going to execute his parameters. It was an accident. You're telling me a teenage nerd fixes some computer sequence and an alien arboretum pops into your building? If you've got hours for a science lesson, I can go through it with you, I challenge, tired of the condescending, brutish bullying. The short version, he barks back. It's a Higgs boson experiment. The particles that give things mass, substance. Mass. I get it. You take away the particles? He insightfully speculates. I blink in surprise, then clear my throat and continue. We dodge them, I explain, sending fancy waves that match the Higgs boson field to draw the massless form of something resonating back to that room, where it again interacts with Higgs particles and re-solidifies. So you're telling me I have some real god-honest aliens running loose? He levels, staring unblinkingly at me, dead in the eyes. That's the bottom line? I, uh, well, not the Sigourney Weaver type, Dr. Mintz interjects. They're more like animals, all sorts of strange things. Some big, 
some small, some bird-like. We've got an inventory, I announced with a puff of pride. Look, I don't care if they're big old almond-eyed gray brainiacs or cute alien bunnies. It's a problem, he says, dismissing me. I mean, shit, birds? Flying how far and how fast? How are we supposed to contain that? Yes, but the inventory, I redirect, pointing to the capture bay. We'll know what's still in there and what got out as soon as we can fix the scan. You'll know how many and which ones you're dealing with. Now Colonel Harstead follows my gesture and points at the capture bay with a much stronger arm. That, he roars, is going to be burned, baked, and obliterated. But it might not be a threat, Dr. Mintz argues. It's the biggest discovery ever. The secrets to a new planet that could potentially support human life. N new materials, new genetics, new... New germs, new diseases, new disasters, Colonel Harstead barks, waving a frustrated hand. So help us contain it, Dr. Mintz spits back, matching the colonel's fury. I gasp, caught between awe and nervous tension. Don't be the idiot that destroys it, she seethes, forcefully jabbing a finger into Colonel Harstead's chest. Undeterred, Colonel Harstead steps deep into Dr. Mintz's stance, sticking a more ominous finger directly in her face. Listen! He begins through a clenched jaw, in a low tone that echoes through the room. The intensity leaves me feeling threatened to a degree matching Dr. Mintz's apparent unease. I had the biological response team for a reason, the colonel continues, and you have me cleaning up a child's mess. The barb strikes me hard. I'm in charge of this response, Colonel Harstead booms. I'll decide who the idiots are. A little spittle flies, further punctuating his ire. Dr. Min swallows and wipes her cheek. She's biting hard, clearly shaken. Colonel Harstead steps back from her and turns back to me. What's the status of this scan? He points to the capture bay. I motion to the shattered consoles. We're working on it, I report. But as you can see, it might take a bit. We're aiming to have a mobile bioscan unit ready soon, though. The phone on the island console rings, and I glance at the display, fully expecting it to be ignorable. But it's my home number. The kids! To Colonel Harstead's surprise, I punch the speakerphone on. Kids? I ask. Are, are you all right? Colonel Harstead leans in to stop the call. I grab his wrist and dagger him with my eyes. I almost stop breathing at what I just did. The Colonel's eyes blaze. Dad! It's Nick's voice. We killed four of them, but one of them got Officer Lutz. He's dead. The intel appears to sway Colonel Harstead, and he pulls back his hand. I take a shuddering breath. The news of Officer Lutz being killed frightens me to the core. He was a decent man. And these poor kids were there for it? Are they really okay? What are we supposed to do, Dad? Are you all okay? I repeat. I was attacked, whines a voice I don't immediately recognize. Shut up, Fitch, Nick responds. How the hell did Fitch end up with him? He should be in school. We know nine of the 37 are dead. Kale's voice reports, and as he continues, I motion to Colonel Harstead that Kale is the kid. How many are still in the capture bay? Kale asks. We're working on that, Kale, I say. We've got the military here, too. I look at Colonel Harstead pointedly. Helping us. Colonel Harstead glares at me and then leans toward the phone, speaking much louder than necessary. Boys, this is Colonel Harstead. And girl, chimes Ellie. Ah, what now? Boys and girl, I'm here too. My daughter, I'm out to Colonel Harstead. Colonel Harstead deigns to be polite. 
Yes, ma'am, and where is here? We're at home, answers Ellie. Forestedge Estates, I clarify when it's clear Colonel Harstead is done entertaining these non-answers. A few miles east of town. The other military officer brings forward a map, and I point out the location for both of them. Kids, Colonel Harstead continues, we need everyone to get to town for a strict quarantine. Anyone who doesn't reach the safety of the designated quarantine zone is in serious danger. Can you come and get us? Fitch asks. Colonel Harstead blinks slowly. Negative, he replies to everyone's displeasure. I need all available personnel on the perimeter to contain the threat. Just go to a neighbor's house and get a ride into town as fast as possible. With a sharp poke, Colonel Harstead hangs up the line and barks a departing order as he heads for the door. Fix that scan. Every second counts, and I am not a patient man. I ditch the crashed ambulance and start walking. To avoid being spotted, I stay off the streets and sidewalks, cutting through backyards instead. The strange thing is that the streets seem deserted given the hour. I did catch at least four people peering out their windows and giving me dirty looks. Wasn't the TV saying something about staying indoors? I guess people are listening. Now, I just need to find an unlocked car to jack. As if I know what the hell I'm talking about. I don't think I could figure out how to hotwire a car, so hopefully I can find one with the keys inside. Otherwise, I suppose I'll need to hitchhike. But however I do it, I need to get far away as quickly as possible. I come out from someone's backyard and round their garage. An older conversion van, a passenger van decked out inside like a camper, sits in the driveway. It would be perfect. I try the door. Damn. It's locked. I peek inside the windows for keys. Nothing. My luck is apparently used up. I'm about to dash across the street when, on the other side of the van, the door of the neighboring house opens and a man exits, whistling some tune to himself. My pulse races a bit, but I think I'm sufficiently hidden behind the van. I look back at the front door of the property I'm on. Thankfully, it is dark inside. I peer back through the front van windows at the man. He's carrying a bag of bird seed and heading for the bird feeder hanging on a shepherd's pole in his front yard. The guy is about my age but already acts like a senior citizen. As he empties the bag into the feeder, he continues his whistling some little earworm ditty that I don't need to get stuck in my head. The man then turns in my direction, and I duck back from the window, eyeing the street to make sure no one else is around. I hear the lid on his garbage bin open and close, and I raise my head just enough to see. The man's whistling trails off. At first, I wonder if he's seen me, but he's studying the tree canopy above his feeder. I follow his fascinated gaze and spot them, too. A couple of the craziest birds I have ever seen are perched above the feeder, and they are large, like ravens on steroids, and I'll be damned if they aren't purple. The whistler guy is awestruck and smiles in amazement, but I'm more confused. Oh, wow, he says. Look at you two. 
I rolled my eyes a bit at the dorky bird worship, but gotta admit these are some unique-ass birds. Two more identical birds swoop in from the far side of his yard and perch on another tree behind the man. And when they land, I see their huge tails separate into three legs. Jesus, what the hell are these things? The man doesn't seem to have seen because his continued musing, where in the world did you all come from, doesn't pick up on the freakish detail. Another pair of the crazy purple birds comes swooping in and lands on yet another tree. They're a bit creepy and seem to stare hungrily at the guy. His shrinking posture indicates that he's now picking up on the ominous vibe and he is finally growing a bit concerned. When the next pair lands right next to the guy on the fence that shields his garbage bins from the street, he's completely surrounded. He shifts his feet nervously. Nice birdies, he says, as if trying to calm them. A crass squawk makes me jump. It sounds like some kind of mutant crow. There's a whole murder of them. Another one squawks, and I see it has rows of sharp, serrated teeth that sparkle in the sun as its body convulses with each squawk. Not nice, not nice, the man mutters nervously. He seems to judge that his front door is too far. The noise builds as every bird joins in on the awful screaming. I genuinely grow afraid. Despite my ribs and the strictness of the corset, I slink down, ready to take cover under the van. The fear even distracts from the pain that moving to the ground incites. Looking across under the van, I see the man's feet as he scurries for his car in the driveway, an old ragtop convertible, but not really a cool one. As he does this, all eight birds take flight and circle around the man and his vehicle. Yep, I'm taking cover. I stifle the groans and moans that my tortured ribs provoke as I roll onto my back and shimmy underneath the van. I hear the man fumbling his keys and turn my head in time to see them hit the driveway with a jangling clatter. His knee drops to the pavement as his frantic hands struggle to pick them up. I sense that the birds descend upon him with an eerie, nightmare-inducing cacophony of screeches. I see only fragments of what happens next as my view extends no higher than his door handle. A lot is left to my imagination as he screams and his body twists and flinches away from each strike. My God, birds from hell! Despite the onslaught, the man's up, keys retrieved and put to use. The car door creaks open, and I see him squirm his way inside the vehicle, swatting at the birds that try to join him. As his door shuts, I scooch over in the cramped space for a better view. His once pink shirt is blotched with red blood, as is his window. The purplish fiends don't relent. They all land on his ragtop and start tearing away at it to great effect. Fragments are coming off in large tatters. The man starts the car in a panic, pops it into reverse, and wildly zips backward into the empty street. Some of the birds take the ride, while the others momentarily scatter up in flight before recommitting to the attack. The man pops the car into gear and takes off, disappearing from my view as he passes the driveway I'm hiding on. Lying on my back, I have to flip my head in the other direction to watch his flight. That's when I see him. 
a little kid on a tricycle pedaling around at the end of a driveway a few houses down. The car zips past the boy, and to my great horror, the birds release, rise up, circle once, scream, and descend on the poor child. I instinctively move to rush to his aid, but one shot of rib pain halts me for a breathtaking moment. In the next moment, screeching tires steal my attention. The man breaks to an abrupt halt. He seems to take a moment to debate it, but to his credit, he jumps out, wielding a tennis racket. He wildly swings like he's playing Wii sports. He swings valiantly with vigor, and the mutant crows take evasive flight, breaking their tight circle around the boy. The man scoops up the child, whose shirt is now also bloody and torn, and rushes the kid into the car before the tormentors re-engage. I'm both horrified by the ordeal and yet selfishly relieved it wasn't me. When the car shoots off down the road, the creatures follow for a short distance before landing in the middle of the road. I freeze and don't move a single muscle. I'm not a praying man, but decide now is the time to start. Please, God, don't let them see me here, I mutter. They prance around for several seconds, apparently needing to calm themselves. Finally, one takes flight, and the rest follow. They head southeast over the houses across the street and disappear in the direction that was once home for me. It troubles me profoundly. I wonder if Kale is out in the woods or safe at the Hagen's. I'm tempted to go check on him, but I know it's a bad idea. And this is all about making a clean break. I can't backtrack and risk making this a greater fiasco based solely on speculative fears for his safety. The best thing for both of us now is for me to get the hell out of town. Right? And these second guesses and doubts are the last things I need. I squirm over, inch by inch, to get out from under the van without terrorizing my ribs. In doing so, my line of sight hits the wheel well. There is a little black box, and I grin when I recognize what it means. I reach up and pull it free from its magnetic grasp. The rattle of the key inside is music to my ears. We hope you've enjoyed Cosmic Creatures, a Spark Media production. This program was directed and executive produced by H.G. Zeisler, featuring the voice talents of Adam Anagnostu as Kale Rhodes, Mike Kelly as Russell Rhodes, John Yonker as Dr. Elliot Hagen, and Luke Langfelt as Major Roggy. Text copyright 2022 by Jason Kent Nord. Illustrations including cover and episode art by Meredith Tuvey. Sound design by Dan Steffens. Story edits by Emily Nord and H.G. Zeiss. A special thanks to our founding Spark storytellers. Rest assured that no animals, cosmic or earthly, were harmed in the production of this episode. Enjoyed what you heard? Check out more Spark stories and find out more about Spark Media on our website, sparkmedia.com. That's S-P-R-Q-M-E-D-I-A.com. Or check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Spark Media. Links and episode notes. Interested in telling stories? Apply to be a Spark Storyteller today. 
We're looking for writers, editors, composers, voice talent, and more. It takes a village to tell a story, and we need you. Link in episode notes. Audio production copyright 2024 by Spark Media LLC. All rights reserved.